What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Stock Talk Weekly. Stock Talk and I talk about the emergence of social media, uh, the uh, current stock market trends, his history, and much, much more. So tune in for another action-packed episode. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. It is strictly the opinion of Stock Talk and myself. All right, now let's get into the show. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I got the man, the myth, the legend, Stock Talk Weekly in the waiting room down below. If you've been on Twitter or I guess X now, you've heard him on Spaces, and you're probably following him because he does absolutely outstanding work. He's always updating on the markets, uh, earnings, all kinds of stuff. So we're going to dive into it all. But first, Big shout out to my sponsor, shout out to Idaho Armored Vault. Bob Coleman and his team have been providing you with extensive amounts of liquidity in all the precious metals with the lowest margins. Bob and his team are disrupting this precious metals industry that has been preying on people essentially wanting to get some inflation hedges, get in and out of the physical space, uh, and they're, they're doing it with large margins. Well, Bob and his team are disrupting that and giving you the lowest premiums and margins on the market. So be sure to check them out at goldsilvervault.com. Say what up to Bob and tell him that Green Candle sent you. And before we get into this talk, if you haven't already, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button um, wherever you're getting podcasts or go to the YouTube and do that and help grow the show, grow the program. All right. Enough for me. Let's get Stock Talk up on up here. Stock Talk, man, how you doing today? You're on mute too. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Hit the unmute button. Uh, doing good, man. Doing good, man. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing. Well. We've had a little struggle with technology today. So <laughs> yeah, I know. How this goes, but no, I know, um, I know. I'm not coming across as the most uh, tech savvy over here. It's all right. It happens to the best of us, but. For those who don't know you or maybe don't know your background, have just kind of heard you on spaces and whatnot, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of, uh, you know, your investment uh, strategy, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I know it's a popular thing on on Twitter for people to pretend like they have institutional experience or pretend like they're former hedge fund managers and this and that. Uh, I don't have a, a formal finance background at all. You know, um, for me, I was... Uh, uh, in medical school at a very young age. I was on the track to go to medical school pretty much since I was out of high school. I mean, I grew up in an Indian family. A lot of people know the stereotypes there uh, with the encouragement to, to be a doctor or to be an engineer. And so uh, I was on that path for most of my life. It, I, I can't ever say I was passionate about it. I mean, I was good at school and like, you know, I have a good memory. And so I was able to perform well academically. But, you know, I was never like gung ho about you know, being a doctor or like practicing medicine. And so, you know, I found myself inter really interested in financial markets at a young age. My, my uncle, my, my mom's brother, uh, one of her younger brothers was a, a stockbroker for a long time. And so uh, he used to just always kind of make me enticed by it. And I was always interested in markets at a very young age. And in medical school, I found myself kind of being the kid you know, you, you hear this kind of in reference, but being the kid that was like trading in the back of the classroom instead of paying attention. Um, and you kind of see some of that now, you know, especially after the retail trading boom in 2020, you see so many college students now like trading the same way that they would be sports betting five or six years ago. You know, it's like getting that level of popularity 
among kids now. So, you know, for me, that's what it was initially. And then as I got deeper into medical school, my third year is really where I decided to leave. You know, after we started doing rotations, I, I went to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And so it's a pretty prestigious medical school. Um, you know, back then, I think it was ranked top five. I don't know where it is now, but um, it, it was difficult. It was demanding, but, you know, it wasn't the, the, the schoolwork that discouraged me. It's when we started doing rotations and I kind of like got a real glimpse at what the, the, the job's like. You know, at that point, I was kind of doubting if I wanted to do it every day for the rest of my life. And so I started looking at other possibilities. I felt like I was a good trader at that time. Now, granted, most people when they're in their first few years feel like they're really good. Uh, and so maybe my bias fed into it there, but it worked out. And, you know, I've been uh, trading full time now for a decade plus. And so, um, you know, it, it's maybe it was luck of the draw. Maybe it was the timing, uh, but it worked out well. Uh, as far as Stock Talk Weekly goes, I started that brand back in um, 2020. So it's only been about three years. Um, and I started it because, you know, once this huge, huge retail trading boom happened in uh in 2020, I was already on Twitter on a personal account and the, the content was just so bad. It was like everyone was pumping, dumping stuff and just tweeting about nonsense and people were chasing tickers and seeing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I felt like people, you know, could stay better informed, make smarter trades that were higher probability. And um, so I tried to kind of inject myself in between it and it worked well and people were receptive to it. And you know, we grew really quickly. We, you know, I had zero followers three years ago and now we have like 220,000. So, um, yeah, it's, it was received well. Um, you know, we started a, a trading community about a year and a half ago that's been received really well also. So yeah, it's been a fun ride, but that's the story in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's great stuff, but, um, you know, it, it is interesting because you get a lot of people, especially like, I mean, myself included, uh, you know, that, that don't have backgrounds of, you know, these institutional kind of programs or whatnot, uh, and kind of, you know, try to learn the ways through Twitter and, uh, and, and whatnot. But what has been kind of, I guess, helpful for you, you know, to kind of learn without having that background? Was it just kind of, you know, just dipping your toes in there, like in the back of the class trading? Or was it, you know, more so, uh, you know, maybe learning from a family mentor or, um, you know, just kind of like receiving a bunch of that information that's, you know, so readily available now on the internet? I'd say a little bit of all of the above. I mean, for me, it was, you know, I was just always a good student. Like I was always good at learning things and absorbing information. Like that's part of what, you know, got me a full ride to med school, right? Like it was, it was this, it's kind of a cultural thing. It was kind of a work ethic thing. But, you know, my parents were just on my ass when I was a kid about being a good student and about like studying and like being diligent and like actually applying yourself. If you want to learn something. And so, you know, there's not a lot from my uh, experience with medicine that I carry over into trading, but that's certainly one of the things that helped me a lot when I was early on, you know, most of it was just YouTube videos, books, mentors, conversations, screen time, right? The basic things that everyone else learns with, but I was just really motivated to do it. You know, I was down to spend like 13 hour days, like really learning, you know, and, and, and also, you know, I never paper traded, you know, there's something that a lot of people ask, advocate for, for me, that really helped accelerate my growth because you lose all of the psychological burden when you're paper trading, all of it, you know, people say that they, you know, oh, I paper trade the same way that I would trade with a real account. And it's never true because the reality is, is that testing yourself psychologically, the pain of loss, losing money, like 
that those that teaches you lessons that you can't just hear somebody say, you know, like I think every new trader in the world, probably the first thing they ever hear when they start trading is manage your risk, set a stop loss, you know, have some sort of risk control, whatever it is, one of those versions of the phrase. And they hear it, but they don't apply it for months or even years sometimes until they really lose enough money to where they're like, you know what, I'm not going to let that happen again. Right. And um, that just proves how difficult or how against your psychology it is to think that way. And you have to like kind of burn yourself. You know, it's kind of like the kid touching the stove philosophy. Like you can keep telling the kid not to touch the stove, but until the kid touches the stove, then they're going to be like, oh, shit, the stove is really hot. That hurt a lot. I don't want to get hurt again. So I'm not going to touch the stove. Right. You need to go through that experience. So I think that's what it was. Um, for me, it was like screen time trading with real money. It wasn't a lot of money when I first started trading. When I was really young, I didn't have a lot of money. So for me, a very small account, but it, it taught me discipline. It taught me how to like stare losses in the face. You know, I blew up two accounts before I ever was profitable. So um, I think being willing to risk money, I think being motivated to learn and the diligence of the work ethic. I think those three things was like what allowed me to, to, to learn as quickly as I did. Yeah, that's great stuff. And I, you know, I agree 100%. Sometimes you need your back against the wall a little bit to figure out what you're really made of, right? I mean, to, to kind of test the waters and do the paper trading stuff. Look, I'm not a financial advisor by any means or, or anything like that. Me neither. <laughs> yeah. I put the disclaimer at the beginning of the show too. But, yeah. you know, uh, at the end of the day, like I think, you know, just like you said, having that little bit like that, that risk of loss, like makes you trade differently than it's like, ah, oh, well, you know, I lost $15,000 on this trade, but it's paper. So I really don't care when really like, all right, losing that, that uh, $15,000 in real life would make you, you know, feel your stomach in your chest kind of thing. You know, like, I mean, exactly. there's, there's something to feeling that feeling um, when you're, when you're kind of getting started trading that, that you need to, to be able to feel that in order to learn. Right. I mean, it is it is a difficult game and it is, it is tough to get into. And that's, that's where I kind of want to lead the conversation next is, you know, you say you've been doing it for like a decade plus or so, which means, you know, you kind of got started when everything was going up. So it seemed like, you know, it maybe there were some some difficulties there. Obviously, you blew up. You said you blew up a couple of accounts. But, you know, it, 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 for the most part, the market was going up on a day to day to day to basis. And uh, now, obviously, it's a little bit more choppy. We have a quite a different macroeconomic landscape. So, you know, how how have you seen the times change from you know, maybe the 2010 to 2020 range to, to now. Yeah. I mean, you know, the markets weren't going straight up over the decade, but you're absolutely right to say that for the most part, we've been in a decade long, you know, ripper here. Um, you know, there's, there's corrections that I've traded through and, you know, there were really hard months in 2017 and 2018. There were hard months in 2016. Um, and so I've been through the ringer in terms of like the ups and downs and what a choppy market looks like, what a bear market looks like. I've been through those things. Um, and so I don't really find myself like panicking about index direction anymore. I think that's probably the biggest point of maturity for me is that um, you know, I see a lot of new traders panicking about index action. And to me, you know, if you're and the SPX traders are going to hate me for saying this, but if you want to own the S&P 500, then in my view, you should let the S&P 500 do the work. And over the very long term, it returns most than better than most stock pickers could on a year to year basis. And 
So if you're a passive investor and you want to buy index funds like the S&P 500 or the Qs and hold them for a very long time, chances are you're going to win on that. But if you're somebody that's concerning yourself with the day-to-day movements in the index and trying to predict them, I mean, to me, it's just a wild task to take on. You're talking about a basket of 500 stocks and you're trying to come up with a reason on a day-to-day basis as to why the index is going to go up and down. Um, you know, I pay attention to the indexes because the direction of the market matters, right? If you're taking longs and the market's going up, that's a tailwind. If you're taking shorts and the market's going down, that's a tailwind, right? So the context matters, but I I find myself trading indexes very, very infrequently. And the reason for that is, is I think your predictive powers, or I shouldn't even call them predictive powers because I try not to predict. I try to react when I'm trading, but your powers of bias are much more likely to be correct on an individual stock than they are on, on a basket of 500 names. Because, you know, if you're, if you have good enough reason and an edge to believe that an individual stock is a good buy and you've done the work and you've done a hundred plus hours of research to really decide, Hey, this is a good investment or it's a good long over the next six months. The chances that you're right about that are much higher than if you were to say the S&P 500 is going to be at 4,700 in you know, three months. And that's a crazy prediction to make. There's so many factors that go into that. So you know, I've kind of leaned away from being predictive and leaned into being reactive over the course of the years. And I think that's the biggest thing that has helped me not panic during volatile markets, has helped me like maintain focus and control. And I'm not, I don't win every day. No one does, right? I'm not saying I never have losing days. I absolutely do. But I don't let them affect me psychologically as much anymore because I'm not concerned about what everything else is doing around me as much as I am concerned about what I'm trading, why I'm trading it, and if that reason is still intact or not. So it's a more focused approach, I'd say. Yeah, and you know, that that's great. And, and, it, and it definitely makes sense. And I think that all kind of comes with experience as well, right? I mean, as you kind of said, Right. I mean, even though the the kind of like the narrative, if you were like a long term trader, everything was kind of up. But there's definitely time periods where, you know, th- there were some down months or down weeks or, or whatever, even like just down days that are that are pretty bad that that affect you psychologically. And I think that's like a big part of, of the trading aspect to me that almost kind of scares me away from it is it's just like, you know, the mental burden it, it, it could potentially put on. But, you know, um, that's where you kind of, uh, you know, come in and do a, a lot of, I, I guess, research on the day to day, so to speak, or maybe earnings. So, you know, we can kind of dive into to that. Um, but, you know, before we get into like earnings and other things like that, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about like macro events, because we're recording this on Wednesday, the 9th, uh, CPI comes out tomorrow. Do you kind of hold any weight on any of these, like, you know, kind of, I guess, bigger events? Um, so to speak, where it's like, you know, the, the CPI or the FOMC meeting potentially raising interest rates and, you know, kind of trying to predict where that's going in order to, you know, uh, I guess, fine tune your uh, trading strategy for that specific day. Or uh, is that just kind of, uh, I guess, a, a mute point and the market just kind of does what the market does? Um, so I, I think when it comes to macro, the way I like to think about it is I like to zoom out. So, you know, I can't forget who said this. It was some, it was one of these celebrity investor guys, but there's a quote that says, you know, the market can be worried about multiple things at once, but it can only ever prioritize one thing at a time. And and I think that that rings really true when you think about like market volatility and reaction to macroeconomic data. And, 
know, I think another mistake people made when they look at macroeconomic data is they mistake a data point for a trend. I try to be very trend driven when I think about macro data. I'll use inflation as an example. So, you know, this year we've seen many consecutive months of disinflation. It's part of what's allowed markets to trend higher because the market, again, going back to that earlier phrase about can only prioritize one thing at a time, the market's greatest priority for the past year and a half has been the fight with inflation. And that's been the market's greatest concern. I mean, you can very easily make that argument if you go back and look at any of the reactions up or down. When we get a cool print, the market loves it. When we get a hot print, the market doesn't. And, you know, I think that over the past three months, because we've had so many consecutive months of disinflation, the market has moved on from the inflation narrative and is now more so focused on the earnings narrative. And I think you've also seen that ring true over the past few weeks with these 20% moves up or down on almost seemingly every major earnings report, right? Uh, these enormous high beta swings. It's, it's a testament to the fact that the market cares so much about these earnings in this moment. And so, you know, I think the market's handed that baton to the earnings narrative. And now that earnings season is coming to a close or the majority of this earnings season is coming to a close now with something like, I think, 65% of S&P 500 companies reporting now, um, with that happening, uh, you know, by, especially by the end of September, uh, the inflation baton could get placed back in first place because if we see an uptick in inflation on this print, which a lot of people are already expecting, we've looked at the rally in energy so far, right? Especially the past three months, oil's been on a ripper, you know, coal's up 22% since June 1st, you know, commodities, especially energy related commodities have ripped and everyone knows that. And I think the market knows it as well. Now, if that can drive an uptick in inflation, the, yeah, we might we might get to, back to the point where the market's going to be reading every CPI report line to line. Um, if it doesn't happen, then we can keep focused on the earnings and, and the commercial real estate and all of these other issues that are at hand. But you know, I think zooming out, making sure you don't mistake a single data point for a trend. I think all these things are important because in the moment, the market. Yeah, if we get a hot print tomorrow, the market might dump. But that doesn't mean that inflation is back. You know, you'd have to wait for another print and another print. And if they keep going in that direction, you can claim it's a trend back. But people made this mistake last year, you know, with the bulls that got stuffed on the rally in August of 2022. People made this mistake on the other side of the ball this year when they kept doubting that the disinflation could continue. And it did for nine months straight. Right. And so people make this mistake frequently where they want to extrapolate a trend out of one data point, And it's just not. It's not smart to do on either side. Yeah. And, you know, I, I agree with that, too. I think like, you know, it, it almost be, seems to me like it's kind of because of, you know, this uh, maybe the spread of information. Right. I mean, I'm starting to pay attention to it. I mean, maybe institutional investors were doing this before and kind of, you know, uh, paying a little bit more attention of it. But it seems like retail um, you know, it's more of a talking point, right? I mean, it, it's something that brings the people in on Twitter spaces. People get curious about these kind of things. So it seems like that's kind of more of the narrative opposed to, you know, the potential of, you know, the market swinging one way or the other. Um, you know, the market might have swung that way, whether or not uh, the CPI print was fine. It just seems like they're kind of trying to find a reason for, for it, so to speak. And it, it is kind of interesting to kind of think, sit back and think about like the, the potential of market psychology um, when it's all kind of based on analysts 
estimating, you know, this value, whether it comes in higher or lower than estimations. And that's the kind of the same way with, with earnings, right? So that's where I kind of want to jump to next. What, you know, we had Disney report today, their earnings were, you know, seemingly kind of fine, but it, it seemed like their subscriber base um, for Disney plus and ESPN plus has just taken a huge dive. Um, and, uh, you know, it, the stock has, has kind of gone down. So, you know, when it comes to earning seasons, um, you know, one, like on a broader scale, how do you look at, you know, earnings as a whole? Do you kind of, you know, hold a lot of weight in, in what's going on, like the direction of the company? And then, uh, and then maybe we'll take a dive into like Disney specifically on, maybe on like a little bit of a higher level. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the Disney example, but earnings in general is a great, um, point to circle back to the comment I made earlier about being reactive instead of predictive. Um, you know, most of Twitter or I should say X or whatever we're calling it now, but, um, most of, uh, most of X is people posting about what they think is going to happen on earnings, right? Like Disney's going to be, Disney's going to miss, Amazon's going to beat, Amazon's going to miss. I'm taking, you know, these out of the money call weekly calls going into the earnings. I'm taking these out of the money weekly puts going into the earnings none of that is consistently actionable. And when I say consistently actionable, I mean repeatable in a profitable way over a long time, over thousands of trades. You're never going to be able to predict earnings consistently in that way. No one can. Um, you know, there's ways to control your risk around using spreads or just going straight equity, but in a volatile market like this, I just don't do it. So I, I don't trade earnings because I don't have a crystal ball. And I think that like predicting what's going to happen is just wildly speculative and it's just not the way I like to do things. But um, as far as reacting to earnings go, what I pay most attention to is I, I wait for the report. You know, if it's a big company that's either an industry leader or it has been a popular stock or anything that I think could affect sentiment, I'll go and read the report. I'll look at the market reaction. The price action matters the most in terms of how it's going to affect other stocks. And then by the market open, I'll usually have a list of other stocks that I think will be affected by that reaction. So whether it's, you know, let's say, uh, I don't know, I'll use travel stocks as an example because they trade tightly. So let's say, you know, Royal Caribbean comes out and posts a terrible quarter and the stock sells off 15%. What's going to happen in the following session? Well, Norwegian Cruise Lines is going to sell off. Carnival is going to sell off. Those are easy, give me the money trades in my view. That's sympathy trading. It's the simplest form of, of trading, right? Because those are predictable. They're high probability. They're stocks that you know move together over and over and over again. Another space that this happens is fintech names. Okay, like all of your fintech names, because the volume of the industry is considered, you know, uh, representative. When, when one of them posts good results, they all rally. When one of them posts bad results, they all dump. I mean, the, the, you can go on and on solar stocks, battery stocks, hydrogen stocks, any kind of closely related bundle of companies. This is going to be actionable on. So that's what I do following earnings. I wait for a big reaction. Right? I'm not concerned about, oh, stocks up 2% or stocks down 2%. That's not driving sentiment in either direction. But I focus, I focus on the reports, stocks up 25% or stocks down 15%. Those affect the sentiment of the rest of the industry. And a lot of times if the, the peers don't report for another few weeks or months, you know, that's a, 
easy trade because so much sympathy is going to get baked in before that report. So much expectation that they're going to follow their peer. Um, it, it ends up being quite actionable. So I like to focus on high probability trades, but um, as far as the reactions go in general, it look, it's been kind of underwhelming. I think the market has shown that it is prioritizing guidance pretty tremendously. I think there's still fear about a recession next year. I think that's obvious because not only are companies reluctant to give big guidance for next year, but I think the market is also tying in all of these lowered guidances to a narrative that there could be a slowdown next year. And that's compounding the reactions and making some of these stocks sell off 15 or 20%. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's fair to say, but you know, in, in general from like earnings uh, you know, ha- have you kind of noticed a, a trend? Cause it seems like it's kind of the narrative out there that, they're being more conservative just in general, um, you know, with earnings and estimates and, you know, when it comes to you know, estimated revenue, all that kind of things. Um, it seems like, you know, it's not necessarily showing as like a, a quote unquote earnings recession because like the expectations of earnings are lower. Are you noticing that or is that just kind of, a, you know, a narrative I'm seeing on like uh, FinX, FinTwit, whatever? <laughs> Can you clarify that? I'm not sure I understand what. Like, uh, you know, you know, for example, like, I, I don't, I, I'm just going to throw out random numbers. I have no idea, you know, the actual numbers, right. But Apple, for example, estimated earnings, like last year uh, during this quarter was, I don't know, 500 million in revenue. Well, oh, you're just talking about estimates just coming down in general. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have, they have. Right. And, um, you know, the market bakes things in pretty quickly. Uh, but if you look at most of the bears this year, I'll probably say Mike Wilson's the most notable, or I should say the most popular Morgan Stanley's um, Mike Wilson, who's been a bear pretty much all the way up this year. If you look at his most recent note, he, he kind of mentioned this, and this was prior to earnings season. Uh, but he said, look, if all these companies beat, then the bulls will have been right. And the rally will have been justified. But if they don't, then they bought stocks they shouldn't have been buying, right? And and this is really exemplified in, let's use, you know, SMCI as an example. Okay, one of the biggest runners this year, Supermicroconductor. Um, it was up, what, sorry, Supermicrocomputer. It was up, uh, you know, like 100% plus since its last earnings report, going into this report, right? That's baking in a lot. That's baking in more than, oh, a, t- a little EPS bead and a guidance raise, right? That's it. Your stock's doubled since the previous report. You have to meet that. And that's the problem that people forget is they forget to look left when they're coming into an earnings report. They forget to say, you know, how far has the stock come since the last time they reported? Because, you know, everyone's hyper-focused on expectations, right? Hey, this company reported this versus expectations. What people forget is, the expectations come from the sell side. They come from the sell side analysts. You still have to convince the buy side to buy the stock. So all the people that have been buying the stock for the last three months, who have, du- who have bought it at double the price of last quarter, are expecting more than a beat. They're expecting an enormous beat and an enormous raise. So that's been the issue, is that as part of this year's rally, so many stocks have doubled or tripled, you know, that are not going to show for it on the earnings reports. And that's not a good thing. And that's why you're seeing so many stocks, you know, people are like, oh my God, there are huge companies selling off 25%. That's what's going to happen if the company went up 100% before the report, 
right? People are not looking left. They're just looking at the chart intraday and saying, oh my God, stock's down 25%. I'm like, yeah, but look how much it's up. You know, I mean, SMCI, for example, is up, you know, 350% in the past year. Most of that move came this year. Most of that move came since May, right? So, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad company, by the way. I don't want to like target SMCI. They've done great and they, they deserve the run up. But I'm just saying, you you have to understand what the company, what the buy side has priced in going into the report. It's not just about, oh, we beat estimates, stock should be up. Because that's a big complaint you see on X all the time. People are, oh my God, I had calls. They beat estimates. Why is the stock not up? You see that all the time, every report, right? And it's like, but how far has it come since the last earnings report, right? Look at the past three months. I tell this all the time. If you're holding a stock going to earnings, look at the past three months and ask yourself, what are they pricing into happen here? You know, it's not just about the expectations. And that's, that's interesting because I think you're the, the first trader that I've kind of, uh, you know, talked to that has like kind of the backward lens, right? Where, where they, they're looking back at, you know, what, what has happened, you know, what might happen based on the, what, you know, what the previous, um, you know, previous results of earnings and other things has happened. Right. And, and, and it, it seems logical to me, you know, kind of why you do that. Um, and it, you know, it seems like, you know, kind of trading on earnings can be difficult. Right. I mean, I mean, you kind of like lined it out there. Like everybody kind of just thinks it, it should be cake. If you beat earnings or they beat estimates, uh, that, that it, the stock should just automatically go up, but it's not always the case. And, you know, simply because of the reasons you lined out, which, which, are, which are great. Um, but you know, from like, uh, I guess I just general, right. I mean, you, you mentioned, I think what, like 60 or 70% of the S and P 500, uh, companies have, have, uh, went through earnings so far. So, uh, I'll leave it kind of broad. Like, how do you think that this earnings season has gone just, uh, you know, from the companies that you're following um, and that uh, just kind of like general market, uh, you know, because it, it seems like the narrative has kind of been this year that, you know, there's like seven companies kind of carrying that S&P 500. Obviously, there's places where you can find um, some diamonds in the rough or some some hidden gems, so to speak. But, you know, as a market, it seems like it's been kind of like floating sideways, um, you know, for a bit. Obviously, there's been, uh, you know, some, some some great companies, but it doesn't seem like it's having a uh, quite the waves that, that maybe we were having like a couple years ago. Um, so uh, I'll leave it at that. Like, how do you feel the the market earning season has gone? Um, just kind of based on what I said. Yeah, I think it's been a pretty big mixed bag. I think across the board, there's probably been more guidance lowering than people expected. And I, I think that's part of the, you know, the negative reaction driver. Um, I think the markets are forward looking. I think the next couple of quarters, there's a lot of overhang macroeconomically. I think people are worried about commercial real estate. I think people are worried about a further decline in home prices. I think people are worried about, you know, at some point, a crack in the employment market, even though it's proven more resilient than anyone expected. I mean, if you go back to you know, December of last year, no one thought the labor market was going to last this long uh, with rates going up as fast as they were. Everyone thought it would crack sooner. And that was one of the one of the other big surprises this year outside of the disinflation narrative that allowed equity markets to go higher, which was that, look, labor is not cracking. We keep beating on labor prints over and over and over again. And, yeah, we've had a few misses here and there, but it just hasn't been significant enough to move the Fed's needle. And that means it hasn't been significant enough to move the market's needle either. And so um, there are still narratives at play that have risk. And I think the market knows that. And 
you know, after this monster rally with with a lot of equities trading pretty richly, the market's kind of asking itself if, you know, if it still needs to own these stocks, especially after the earnings reports. And that's what's happening, I think. And, you know, that can change very quickly. We might we might come into next quarter and everyone just starts demolishing estimates. Right. Because the big trend, the, 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 the kind of uh, trailing trend that people forget about is that market expectations move well ahead of the season. And so, you know, before next earnings season, market expectations will probably come down for next earnings season. And, you know, maybe next season they'll miss again. But, you know, eventually that trend catches up to itself, right? Eventually the expectations get too low and you actually set yourself up for a season full of enormous beats, right? So that's usually how this ends. And I'm not saying it'll end next quarter or the quarter after. I don't have a crystal ball. But at some point, if estimates keep coming down, we will have a big earnings beat quarter. Uh, and, and then maybe that'll serve as um, some kind of bottoming in sentiment. But, you know, I'm not ready to write off the rally completely here. I, I think people panic about a few days of price action. I mean, it's really only been five days of, relative weakness in equities. I mean, that's not a lot. You've had a year full of relative strength. So, you know, let a trend develop is my view. I think the markets don't care what you think. I, th I think you shouldn't trade the market that you want. You should trade the market that you have. It's like one of my favorite stock market quotes. And I think people who continually try to reinforce their belief about what should happen or the doom and gloom people who think that there's too many risks at hand, I mean, they miss the whole rally this year, right? Because they refused to acknowledge the trend. When you have an uptrend like you had this year, fading it is just a death sentence. And, and the same thing goes for a downtrend like last year. I mean, last year was a very clear downtrend. Trying to act, buy equities in that mess was a death sentence, unless you were buying oil stocks. And so um, knowing and acknowledging the trend and not fighting the trend, you know, the trend is your friend. I've been, been dropping a lot of cliches here, but re it really is. And, you know, um, you should, traders and investors should think of it that way. You know, if if we come back here and peel below 4,400 SPX, yeah, I think you can start getting a little worried. You know, um, we peel below 4,400, and I think you might be able to even see 4,150, which would be a pretty big drop from the highs. And that might spook a lot of people. But you need people to get spooked. You need the short side to get stacked for the pendulum to swing. It's just kind of the way it works. If you look at, you know, when everyone was started clamoring about net exposure being too high, this was just a couple of two weeks ago, people were clamoring about net exposure being too high. People were saying uh, hedges were trading at their cheapest level ever. I mean, all these headlines were dropping at once. And then what happened? We, we saw a correction in markets, right? And so now what's going to happen? Exposure is going to flip to the other side. Hedges are going to get more expensive. And that opens the way actually for a rally higher. So how deep is that going to go? No clue. But for me, I just continue to pay attention to the trend, watch it every day. When I start losing confidence in relative strength, you know, the way I like to put it is once it starts looking less like rotation and more like indiscriminate selling, that's a good cue. Um, and we haven't had too many days of that. Even if you look at the selling pressure we had about a week and a half ago, that selling pressure was really rotation driven. You saw underperformance in tech and outperformance in the Dow Jones. You had several days of outperformance in the Dow Jones. And that speaks rotation to me. That says people are taking money out of tech and putting it into other stocks, right? That's not market-topping behavior. What's market-topping behavior is when you're dumping everything, right? And today, 
at least initially was one of those days, right? You saw, you know, in the morning you had uh, the Dow down pretty significantly. I'll have to go look at where they closed here, but yeah, I mean, yeah, on the day you have, you know, at the, the outperformer today was biotech, which closed flat, but you had the Dow Jones down half a percent. You had spy down 60 bips. You had IWM down 80 bips. The Q's down over a percent, RK down 4%, right? So this is, a, was an indiscriminate selling day. Um, and you saw a bit of that last Friday too, but until you see a chain of these where, Hey, you get five days of consecutive pure red indexes. Yeah. Then we can start talking about a downtrend. Um, but I'm not convinced yet. Uh, I, I don't like to jump ship that quickly or I don't like to switch jerseys that quickly. I like to say. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it doesn't see, yeah, I mean, you're right. Right. I mean, like if you, you hear the narrative on Twitter, it seems like, a lot of more bears like kind of doom and gloom, like pain ahead, right? Recession next year. Uh, that kind of like narrative is being thrown out. But, you know, I was just looking at the S&P 500 like year to date. It's like up about 17 percent uh, at the time of this recording. And, you know, from that decade long of growth that we talked about, you know, they took the narrative was essentially you could assume, you know, 10 to 12 to 15 percent growth for the entire year. And, you know, we've already gotten that uh, just uh, just over halfway through the year. So it seems like the trend, it's still trending up, although, you know, there are some cracks underneath the surface that you kind of outlined. Right. I mean, potential for commercial real estate jobs, you know, a lot of other things that, that, that they've kind of been you know thrown out there and that the bears are continually talking about on X. But, you know, with that. You know, obviously, we're coming out of the earnings seasons here now. Um, we're getting into what Q3 of this year. Uh, you know, how is how is your kind of like market outlook for the rest of the year? Do you kind of, I guess, like trade on that kind of aspect where you're looking a little bit more forward, or do you kind of just, uh, I guess, kind of take it day by day and do, as you kind of said, you know, be a little bit more reactionary? Yeah, the latter, absolutely. You know, I. I get this question, I'd say a lot, even on Twitter spaces, like, hey, what do you think the SP 500 is going to be in six months? Or, you know, hey, do you think this is a good price to buy this stock or, or like whatever, you know, like any of those types of questions, I always give the same answer, which is I don't have a crystal ball. And I think this is the biggest like myth and problem and cancer, if you will, on all of financial social media is this idea that like, we should be predicting what's going to happen, you know, and even banks perpetuate this, right? Like the big banks, even they'll, they'll be like, Oh, our, they come out in January, our S and P forecast for the end of the year. I'm like, what you're talking about? What 12 months from now, how do you even know? And they're always wrong. Like they're always wrong. There's always one or two guys who are randomly right. And they parade it around at the end of the year, like they're analysts of the year. And it's like, okay, to me, you just got lucky. Like to me, that that does not forecast any kind of analytical discipline or skill. Um, I let the sell side do that work, frankly, as far as predicting goes. And I like to react to sell side research. It's one of the main things that I use to trade, actually. But um, I don't do it. I mean, it, for, for me, it's like if I even wanted to have a convicted opinion about where markets would be in six months, I wouldn't believe it. The amount of work that that would actually take to have some kind of concrete opinion. I mean, you have to be analyzing everything, right? So for me, I'm very reactionary. Like I'll go where the markets take me. You know, if if we give up 4,400 SPX next week and everything starts selling indiscriminately, I'll start shorting some stocks. You know, and if if that doesn't happen, then I'll stick to the relative strength candidates that have worked all year, and I'll keep trading them to the upside. I mean, for me, I really just keep it that simple. I know it sounds rudimentary, but 
you know, to me, that's actually the biggest problem is overcomplication. This kind of like Nostradamus gene, you know, that everyone has like, ooh, crystal ball. Because people love quote tweeting their tweets from five months ago and saying, oh, I was right. Look, you know, but they just ignore all the ones they were wrong on. So, yeah, I just hate that. I just hate that mentality. I just think it's cancerous. I don't think it's a good way to trade either or invest, to be frank. I think when you're investing, you're not even predicting either. What you're, think, what you're doing is you're doing a ton of work to say this company right now is a good value buy. And I think that this company over the next X amount of years, whatever your desired holding period is, is going to become more valuable. That's your decision you're making when you're investing. You're not making a prediction. What you should be doing, if you, even if you're holding individual stocks, is every single quarter, you should be reading the earnings report and asking yourself, is the reason I bought this stock still true? Is it still cheap? Is it still growing? Is it still executing? You know, so I think both investing and trading are reactive or should be reactive. But I think too many people make them predictive unnecessarily and cost themselves money as a result. Yeah, I gotcha. Well, I mean, and, and that all kind of makes sense, right? But, uh, you know, you've, we've kind of alluded to it, right? I mean, this is how we kind of met was on Twitter spaces and, you know, X or, or whatever. But, you know, as that's kind of developed over your time, right? I mean, you, you said, you know, you started with zero followers. Now you've got a couple hundred thousand. So obviously, congratulations on the success before we dive into that. But, you know, how do you think that the sharing of information and kind of, uh, you know, the introduction of like social audio, as well as, uh, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, Twitter threads, other kind of mediums where, you know, not, not only just Wall Street bets, but like, you know, kind of the sharing of information. How do you think that's developed over your time? And, you know, how uh, on, on Twitter and how, how do you think that has affected you trading, if any? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think the emergence of social media in trading isn't necessarily new. I mean, you used to have Yahoo message boards and AOL chats and those kind of things, but it's certainly gotten much more influential. Um, you know, you even have hedge funds now coming out and saying they read Reddit message boards and read Twitter. Um, we've had the biggest explosion in new retail accounts in a three-year period ever. I mean, by far. It's not even close. There have been like 45 million retail accounts open in the last three years. Like, it's mind-boggling. And and most of those, I, actually, I don't have the data, so I, I don't even want to say most of those, but a large number of those are, you know, first-time accounts or, or accounts of people who have never had a brokerage account before. And so when you think of it that way, you know, people, especially legacy, you know, traders who traded during the dot-com bubble and stuff, those guys will say, well, markets never change, yada, 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 yada. And, you know, I think that principle is, is true. You know, risks are always there and you should always manage your risk and hedge and all that good stuff. But one thing that has certainly changed is the market's behavior on a shorter time frame. And part of that is because of retail trading. Um, you know, the biggest evidence of this is SPX contract notional distribution. So SPX contracts are the most liquid, most traded contracts in the world of any product. So they're a good indicator of where your sentiment is going. And if you look at the percentage of SPX notional distribution in 2018, so prior to the COVID and 20, 2019, 2020 situation, if you look at them in 2018, 15%, one five, 15% was zero DT or, or sorry, not just zero DT, but less than one day to expiration. So either zero DT or next day expiry. 
15%. That number today is 60 to 65%. So that's significant. That's showing you that more people are trading on a weekly basis than ever before by quite a big margin. And that distribution has forced a lot of funds, especially fast money funds, to also participate in weekly and zero DT contracts in a way that they have never before. And so it's created this mechanism where reactions happen much faster, not only on individual stocks, but on indexes. You see this all the time. It's huge. You know, it's, there's days where spy trades like a penny stock, you know, um, and there's days where, you know, these individual equities are up 25% or down 25% on earnings. This is all exacerbated by short-term trading. And social media has engineered that even more because this emergence of social media technology and the spread of information rapidly and instantly to millions of people has created this liquidity influx where stock gets mentioned on Twitter and within two minutes, it's 10x its volume, you know, or an options contract gets mentioned on Twitter and within two minutes, it has more OI than it's had for an entire month. You know, it's like that, uh, that type of behavior is new and, and that type of behavior is probably here to stay partially because of what you're talking about, which is this explosion of social media and the tra instant transit of information, but it's accelerated by the explosion in retail trading and the access to retail trading. Like ne very, never before in history, really, prior to the first five years, has your average Joe Blow been able to go and open an account instantly on their phone, instantly get $100 instant deposit and immediately go and buy a share of any stock they want. Anyone can do that now. That's a crazy level of access. And, you know, the get rich quick scheme is really easy to sell when it comes to financial markets. You know, everybody on Twitter tries to do it. You know, I, I hate it, but it, it's really easy to sell. And because of that, all of these people are flocking to retail trading and, it's going to just keep this trend going, you know, soon enough, you'll have hourly contracts, you know, um, and I don't think people are ready for that. But you know, that, that's really where we're headed. We're headed to 24 hour equities trading with hourly options contracts. Everything is incredibly hyper liquid at all times. Market makers are going to be eating steak and lobster every night for dinner. I mean, that's where you're headed, right? The market making industry is about to explode because everyone wants a piece. You know, trading is the only industry where somebody can do it for five years straight and lose money every year and they still want to trade. Right. I mean, it's the only one of the only industries. It's so sticky. Robinhood has shown this just in their account numbers. Like, think about how many retail traders have gotten washed out. Why haven't they lost all their accounts? Because they keep coming back. Next paycheck, they're just depositing another, you know, couple hundred bucks and they're back in the game. You know, same principle as sports betting. Right. Um, you know, sports betting, a lot of these sports books, DraftKings, it's hyper competitive. They go from sports book to sports book, but they're sticky to the industry. You know, people who have been sports betting their whole lives are not quitting sports betting, even if they've lost money the whole time. In fact, the vast majority of people have, you know, I've, my, my five friends who have never made money on sports betting in 10 years and they still sports bet every weekend. Right. So it's like, it's the same principle, right? <laughs> it's the same principle. It's like people are willing to burn their money for entertainment. And for some people trading is entertainment. I don't know what you're talking about, dude. I love it. <laughs> dude, I'm definitely going to win a lot of money. This NFL season's mine. I don't know what you're talking about. It's going to happen. I'm the same way. 
Yeah. I know. I'm, I'm totally kidding, obviously, but uh, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it is interesting that you kind of brought up like DraftKings and some of these, uh, you know, the, the market makers and kind of like the correlation between the two, because, you know, it seems like they're they're doing a lot of like incentivizing to get, uh, you know, clients to kind of stay. Right. I mean, like you, you mentioned DraftKings and some of their competitors. Right. I mean, they they give you like outrageous, just like for sure bets that you can put like a couple hundred bucks on that you like will automatically win just to join their sports book. And then it seems like people are kind of just jumping. I have friends that jump from best offer to best offer and they just kind of do that. And then they see whichever odds they like. And then that's the sports book they're using that weekend. Um, and it seems like that's kind of, uh, you know, almost like the Robin Hood model, so to speak, right? I mean, like you join their platform, you deposit, you invite friends, they give you a stock. Whereas like, you know, the older kind of like the Charles Schwab's and, you know, some of these other brokerages, they don't really give you those kind of, uh, you know, incentive based like referral kind of things. Um, but do you think that, that that's kind of, uh, you know, maybe a, a reason why people uh, potentially that 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 you know the the social media aspect of you know t- twitter wall street bets like reddit all those kind of things has kind of blown up because it's almost been like gamified in a sense yeah i mean that's definitely true it certainly has been gamified i mean that's what apps do is like that's why they focus on ui and ease of access and referrals and like it, it's it's intended to gamify you know they'll never admit that but that's the intention I mean, that's what, you know, exactly what Weeble and Robinhood do, right? They've gamified it. I mean, even when you think about like, like I use Weeble. I love it as a retail brokerage, right? It's not my only brokerage. I have a professional brokerage as well. I use IBKR as well. But, you know, I, I enjoy it. The UI is amazing. You know, the it's very easy to interact with. It's very quick and, and effective to place trades. They have a great watch list. So, you know, I think Robinhood's platform is shit, but that's a separate conversation. But um, you know, they're focused on UI and ease of access, and it works. And um, you know, it'll continue to attract new users because most people don't want to do the work. Most people don't want to like do real fundamental analysis or real technical analysis. They just want to open a brokerage app and buy something and see it go up or down and then sell it. Right? You know, like most people aren't even looking at charts to be frank, which is sad, but it's just true. And um, yeah, it's. It's a problem that can't be solved, to be frank. It's just human nature, and it's going to keep expanding. More and more retail accounts will get opened. Shorter and shorter time frames will, will open up on trading. Social media will get more and more vociferous about stocks. It's just going to happen. I mean, it's inevitability. You know, I try to be a realist about these things. Do I think it's good for financial markets? Probably not. You know, it'll probably turn the market into more of a casino slowly and gradually. <laughs> not that it's not already one, but... Um, yeah, we're, we're headed to greater gamification of markets, greater gambling, more companies trading at 100 times sales. You know, that's the type of climate you're headed for because people care less about fundamentals and more about price in this type of environment. They care more, much more about sentiment, right? Like sentiment can drive a stock very high. I mean, look at Carvana this year. It's 5x, you know, upstart before the earnings report, 3x, right? Like that's a massive gain on equity, right? But this is happening in two, three month periods, making people life-changing money. One hit like that, you're, you're, you're addicted for life. It's like taking a hit of heroin or something. Like these guys are, they get one big trade like that, one life-changing trade, and they'll never stop trading. That's, that's the tough part. And, and that's where people are forgetting about this. Like back in the day when you had to get a financial advisor or get on the phone with a broker. I mean, I had cousins in Canada who just only a couple of years ago Every time they wanted to place a trade, it was like four or five years ago, 
they had to call their broker to place it. Like in some parts of the world, it's only the, the, the level of democratization of access is only um, just now getting there. You know, once it becomes a worldwide phenomenon and everyone in the world can open a brokerage and participate in U.S. equities. Imagine telling that to people in like India or in, you know, Western Europe, like, oh, I can trade U.S. stocks just on my phone instantly with no commission. What? Like the order flow madness is going to be nuts. Yeah. And uh, I, I think nuts is an understatement for that, to say the very least. So uh, but you've been very generous with your time. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, so for those who don't know you, why don't you tell them a little bit about where they can find you and uh, what all you got going on? Yeah, man, I appreciate that. Uh, happy to come here. It was a great conversation. Um, so you guys can find us primarily on on Twitter or X. Uh, I always never know which one to say now, but uh, X.com or Twitter.com at stock talk weekly um we're mainly on twitter 99 percent of the content is there um if you guys want to learn how to trade we also have a private trading group as well the link for that's in my bio uh we don't do any pump and dump bullshit no like you know far out of the money pennies options contracts we don't do any of that garbage we just try to take really high probability trades uh talk about why companies are winning why they're losing um so we try to do it differently but if you're interested in learning how to trade um, on a shorter term basis, you could definitely check that out. The links in my bio. Uh, and other than that, we do a ton of free weekly Twitter spaces throughout the week. I'm live for power hour almost every day. Uh, we do a stock talk live trading show as well on Wednesdays. Um, so a lot of free content, um, some premium content as well, if that's something you're interested in, but uh, appreciate you having me, man. It was great, Brandon. Uh, thanks for your time, man. Of course. Yeah. And I'll link all that in the show notes as well. So if you want to check it out, I definitely recommend the follow on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's posting his uh, his trading wins, too, after the fact. So, I mean, uh, if you're if that's something that's enticing to you, I mean, uh, they're, they're doing a great job in there. So definitely uh, be sure to check that out. All right, man. Stock talk. I'll, I'll, I'll see you around in the in the Twitter verse or I guess the expert <laughs> now, man. Yeah, man. Happy to happy to come back on uh, maybe in a couple months and then we'll see how the markets have changed and what the updates are. Yeah, for sure. We'll have to have you back on. You're a recurring guest now, dude. So now you're like legally obligated. <laughs> happy, happy to do it, man. Happy to do it.